This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us for the latest episode of Cafe Connect. So I'm Chris Crowley. I work for the University of Aberdeen's Public Engagement with Research Unit. And Cafe Connect brings us really the latest research and projects from the University of Aberdeen. And in this podcast series, we're really trying to meet different researchers, different colleagues from around the university who will talk about the projects, their research and its relevance to our everyday lives. And in part, this, this series is a little bit of a response to the current um, social distancing regulations and normally in our cafes we would encourage question and answer at the, the end of the, the the discussion however we still really want you to, to participate so at the end of this you know please feel free to email your questions to us at peru at abdn.ac.uk so that's p-e-r-u at abdn.ac.uk but I'll read that out at the end of the podcast again as well and today I'm joined by my colleague Neil Curtis who is head of museums and special collections at the University of Aberdeen. Hello Neil. Hello. All right Neil so it's good to have you with us. Now so far in this series we've been looking at research um, and this time you, you you're obviously the head of you know museums and special collections and it's the collections really at the University of Aberdeen um, and the research which is done on them and how that really allows us to have an insight into life in Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire, the northeast of Scotland, some four thousand years ago. So I think you know what we're talking about is the beakers that are in our collections and the stone circles which are in Aberdeenshire and how these are the major material remains of the people of this region from four thousand years ago. And that's that's one of your areas of specialisation, Neil. Yes, and indeed it's one of the strengths of the university's museum collections that um, we're fortunate to have a collection that's been built up over many years. In fact, I was, I was actually just looking at one of our earliest catalogues today and discovering that probably one of the first beakers to come into the collection was, I think it was in the 1820s. Um, so it's been collecting since then. Um, and really some of it grew through the 19th century with the building of roads and railways and new deep ploughing. And so things that were being found and the university was the natural place for people to bring things. And that particularly became a, a factor in the later 19th century and into the early 20th century when we had some very active anatomists, um, you know, Professor Strother and, and Professor Reed and Professor Lowe, who were very interested in these people that we're going to be talking about today. Um, and so if a farmer found this stone kist that a plough had knocked the lid off and found a skeleton lying there, they'd bring it to the, the, the anatomy professor and also some of the objects that came with them. So um, Professor Reed, for example, he wrote a, a wee booklet all about the beakers that were in the collection in 1924. So it's something that's been going on for quite a long time. Um, <clears throat> and indeed their anatomical interest um, took them to look at the people today as well. So apparently they, they measured the skulls uh, of the prehistoric people and they measured the heads of their own medical students to see if they could see a link. So there's been that research going on for a really long time and it's led to the collection being particularly rich. I mean, I think we've, we've got about 60 beakers in, in the collection, which is you know, well over half of those that have ever been found in the Northeast. So it is, you know, it is one of the most important collections. Um, and the Northeast was anyway one of the main places in Europe for the burial of these sorts of sorts of materials. Okay, so maybe just, just taking it back a little bit, when we talk about beakers, is that what it says it is on the tin? 
<laughs> it wasn't a tin, that's for sure. Um, but we'll maybe come to that in a minute. Um, the the beakers are they're they're ceramic pots. They're handmade. They are very finely made. A lot of them, not all. You can definitely tell that some people were good at it and some were not. I've tried making one myself, and I come in that latter category. Um, usually, I suppose you know, thirty centimeters high, quite chunky pots. Um, and the profile is often sort of S-shaped with a curve. It's sort of got a belly and then a flared neck and often decorated with patterns that sometimes it's been little bits of string that have been impressed in them um, or a line drawn with a, a sharp tool. Or sometimes the ones I find most amazing are those you can see it's a fingernail, little arches, and you can, you know, it's astonishing to be able to put, put your fingernail in the space where somebody's fingernail was 4,000 years ago. That's one of the privileges of being a curator. Uh, indeed. So th th there's a question then. Is, are, are these everyday or were they everyday objects or were they you know, high status objects used for burials, for ceremonies or you know, were, were, they, were families using them on a day-to-day -day basis? Do we know? This is one of these questions that we'd love to know the answer to. Um, the ones that we have um, have survived because they were buried in these stone kists underground. So they've been you know they've been lying there for thousands of years um if they'd been just you know left in a house the house would have fallen down the field would have been plowed there'd be nothing left so there's a huge bias in what survived towards these ones associated with burials there are plenty of examples from other places we've not yet really got from the northeast um where beaker type pottery has been found in domestic contexts um but when we're looking at the northeast Sadly, we're primarily talking about what people did with the dead, rather than what they did when they were uh, with when they were alive. Fair enough. So, um, I guess that's the thing: is that research is always ongoing on these, and they're always going to be reinterpreted in the scientific progress. You know, when new techniques come to light, as well as new excavations and new techniques and excavations as well. So, um, so we we always move along with that new research, and there's been new projects looking at these beakers recently. Yes, there have. I mean, I think there's there's a, a long trail to this. That, it, for example, the nineteen seventies, the British Museum had a dating program to try it with radiocarbon dating. Now, at that point, it involved the destruction of you know maybe you know five hundred grams of bone to get a not wonderful date. So, more recently, new techniques have let us do dating with down to just half a gram of bone. So, it's these new techniques, also stabilised stop analysis, which we'll maybe talk about later. Um, that led us to think that really we needed to look at them now and do a good local chronology, work out exactly when this phenomenon started, when did it end, could you see any patterns within that? And then with the stable isotope analysis, that was the idea was that that could give us a hint as to what they were eating and maybe where those individual people were born as distinct from where they died. So that new uh, scientific approach led us to think, right, we've got this wonderful collection in Aberdeen, let's focus on it. So we, a number of years ago now, we, we um, got a, a grant from the Leverhulme Trust um, to do this. We called it the, the Beakers and Bodies Project um, that was looking at the northeast of Scotland. We worked very closely with an Arts and Humanities Research Council project that was looking more generally across the whole of the British Isles. So we fed together and they've actually been published together. 
Okay. So, yeah, and, and just, just to sort of recap there, that's, yeah, the beakers can only really be dated by dating the people they were buried with and not the beakers themselves. There's yes. no pollen analysis or any constituent part of the beaker that would allow them to be dated? Or You might want to do that as your project, but it's, uh, I mean, the point is that the, the, by dating the bones, you're dating the person. Um, and we were able to do that. I mean, I hopefully in time there will be techniques. I mean, there are techniques that can um, can give an indication of the date when pottery was fired, the temperature of, of firing changes the, the structure. So there are ways in which you can do it, but radiocarbon dating has now reached a point where it's very reliable and not very expensive. It's a few hundred pounds at most. Okay, and that's that's how we get to that date of four thousand years ago. That's that's the the sort of the, the time frame in which these people lived, um, and. They, you know, they, they, they lived in the northeast for you know, how long? <laughs> I mean, this is actually where, you know, in the past I used to talk very glibly as, oh, this is life in the northeast of Scotland 4,000 years ago. I'm now trying to struggle with the fact we have better dates. So we can talk about it was the 24th century BC and, you know, they, the, what happened in the 22nd century BC and by the 19th century BC. So there's actually, we're getting down to the sorts of dates that you you would be used to if you're a historian talking by century so it's much much richer that was one of the great achievements of this recent work okay right and how how did these relate then to the stone circles these were produced by the same people effectively whoa well we 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 didn't know Ah. um and we're still not entirely sure um i mean you look at the northeast and there is this concentration of breaker burials and there's also a concentration of this particular style of stone circle, recumbent stone circles that have one very large stone lying on its side um, as one side of a ring, if it's possible to have a side of a ring. Um, and we've always assumed that they're roughly the same date, but never been sure. There was a tendency to feel that the beakers we knew were buried with metalwork. So the Chalcolithic, which was the first use of copper or the Bronze Age, whereas stone circles, you think of the famous stone circles, Callanish, um, Stennis, Brodgar, even Stonehenge, and they were tend to be built in the Neolithic. So, you know, longer ago than 4,000 years. So um, fortunately, there was a project that's taken place over a number of years by Professor Richard Bradley, who's formerly of Reading University, and he managed to excavate and get some dating material for some of these stone circles and it's still rather a shugly peg we've not got many dates for many stone circles um, but it does look as though it's coming into this sort of you know 20, 22nd century bc was what we we feel it's hitting so that we can now say reasonably confidently that they are about the same time. Okay, and there's been that sort of continuity of you build in a stone circle tradition that these people had no doubt imbibed from their forefathers and seen elsewhere. And Well, maybe, yes, but maybe it was more of a gap. I mean, I, I think I've compared it a bit with neo, neo-Gothic architecture, that you're, you're creating in the present something that looks as though it's old, rather than there actually being continuity. And I think discontinuity is actually one of the parts of the story that's come out very clearly. OK, but, but we couldn't classify them as Victorian follies, for example, then. <laughs> no, but we can talk... But bizarrely, we're getting close to talking about the 19th century BC, so... <laughs> OK, fair enough. So, you know, the, 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 these people were taking their inspiration in part from the past, but they're also taking their inspiration from new trends and technologies and patterns that were happening throughout Europe. And... 
did the project point to um, international connections for the northeast in this period? I think it's um, there are various things that have been known for a while. I mean, what we were able to do was just tighten up the argument a wee bit in the northeast that um, with the beakers I mentioned, metalworking. Now that's something that started here um, at about this period, but it started elsewhere much earlier. So that's obviously a tradition that's come in. The analysis of some of the copper, it looks as though it came from southwest Ireland. The beakers, the st general style of beakers, the greatest affinity is with the east coast of England and the Netherlands. Um, so you are getting these distant connections, um, curiously, both up the west and up the east coasts of, of the British Isles. So there's, there are these international connections. So it's important that these local stories tie in with those broader ones. Yeah, so I mean, here's possibly the unanswerable question here, but... How did these people travel? I mean, you mentioned east and the west coast, and I immediately thought of is it is it travelling by boat, coastal hugging sort of travelling, not not coming across the North Sea, but hugging the the coastlines along what would be modern day uh, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, across to the east coast of England, and then hugging the coast all the way up. Is that possible? Yeah, I think you said it. I mean, I think we we know that there were Bronze Age boats. We know that there were boats this time. Some of which were, um, I mean, slightly later period quite substantial boats crossing the channel with lots of bronze work on them. So um, although we don't have any evidence in the northeast for boats, we also, of course, know that people reached Orkney. So if they could reach Orkney, they could reach Aberdeen. Yeah. OK, no, no, fair enough. Yeah. So the, um, the you mentioned new techniques as well, and you, you earlier on there you 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 mentioned stable isotope analysis and you've also mentioned carbon dating. I think maybe the audience might be more familiar with carbon dating than they are with stable isotope analysis. So do you want to talk us through what the the technique of stable isotope analysis is as far as you can? Yes. Very, <laughs> yes, not as a scientist. So, uh, I mean, basically the point is, as as you are living, you are eating food, you're drinking water that um, comes from your local environment. Um, and your bones are always growing through your life, always being replaced. So if you um, look at the elemental makeup of what's in your bones, what carbon is there, what nitrogen, what sulfur and so on, it will probably reflect more or less the environment you're in today, and depending on the type of food you eat. Um, however, your teeth are formed when you're a very young child. And so they record what the environment of the person was when a young child. Mm. So that means you can tell something about whether they were born in one place and, you know, latterly lived and died in another place. It also can tell you something about was there a bias towards eating, um, you know, meat over uh, vegetables or fish and marine resources over, you know, land resources. So you can start telling something about their diet. And that was actually one of the things we, we did find that um, there the people seem to have broadly been brought up and lived all their lives in the northeast. We didn't find ones who had moved particularly far, even though that is a factor that has cropped up in other places across uh, across Europe, that there are individuals associated with beakers who have travelled in their lifetime, which is a really interesting and very important story. We did find that they were tending to eat animal protein, so as if they were you know, herding animals, um, they weren't eating uh, much in the way of fish, which is interesting, given that some of them um, were living near the coast. And as you were talking about uh, boats, yeah. that, you know, now whether that's, you know, um, taboos or, you know, like eating fish on Friday, but you had to eat, you know, you weren't allowed to eat it on any Friday. We don't know, but we're beginning to get those hints. But certainly this story that they were basically from the northeast yeah. 
And yet you've got this other story that over a longer period, there was long distance travel and people probably moving long distances. So trying to relate those two different scales is what's really intriguing. Okay, so to maybe drill down a little bit into what you were saying there about the, the diet. So it's animal protein and herding, and this is farming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, farming had been going on in the northeast for quite a while already. I mean, it wasn't the introduction of farming yeah. that was already happening. It may also indicate something um, that it, it's social differentiation that the people who were buried are probably not a cross section of society. Okay. To have these fancy pots and these fancy graves, it was probably the more powerful people. So maybe they were the ones eating more meat. Yeah. But sadly, of course, we don't have the burials of everybody, so we're left in a bit of speculation there. Okay, so we have that, that element of the landscape of the dead, which is really, I suppose, the landscape of the living. Actually, burials are, are as, as obviously as much to do with the living. Um, do we have any indication as to where the people lived? Did they live round about where they buried the, the high status? Yeah, I mean, I think the... Again, Richard Bradley's work is one of the, the most important bits of recent research. This wasn't what, what we were doing. Um, but looking around the stone circle at Tom Neveri near Tarland, um, they did find scatters of flints in the, the fields roundabout. Not, often the stone circles are up on the hills, slightly lower. The beakers were often buried uh, say in these stone kists, not usually with a particular mound or cairn over them, but often on more prominent bits of the landscape, a slight knoll. So it looks as though these special places were slightly raised above the, the places that they were living and farming, but definitely part of that world. I mean, they'd have, you know, your ancestors would have been overlooking you. Yeah, that's that visibility of them, isn't it? That, that, yeah, that, that they haven't actually gone away, that they're there and you're living within their shadow, I guess. Okay, so yeah, I guess, and, and pulling it back to the project that we have. So, I mean, what else is it telling us about life as, as you know, as it was lived in that what twenty second, yeah. twenty third, twenty fourth? I mean, I always feel when asked a question like that, I always feel slightly torn because on the one hand we can tell bits, but there's so much more that we can't tell, and you start thinking, I want yeah. to talk about other stuff, but just you know what we were getting from from the beakers. Um, that we were looking at slightly different styles, different dates. And so some of the earlier ones we had um, were associated with um, the tiny little beautifully made flint arrowheads, um, little stone uh, tools, which were probably actually a bracer on, on your arm to protect you from your firing an arrow from the, the string hitting you. So it looks as though that association with archery was important and indeed a lot of those um, burials were associated with you know adult and older men so is that a sort of warrior elite thing there's something coming in there um, indeed I think of all those that um, we were looking at 60% were male so that immediately shows you yeah. this is you know this is a biased sample of the whole population but not a biased sample perhaps of the elite um, that it was that sort of, you know, maybe a, a male warrior elite is being hinted at, which is intriguing. Um, we did find other ones where there are clear local styles. There's a, a lovely group which we detected um, in Buchan where they're beautifully made beakers and they've got a decoration almost like diamonds all the way around the side. And almost all of them are from Buchan. There's a couple of ones from elsewhere in Scotland. So 
that sense of maybe a local identity as part of yeah. this broad international thing. So it's it's more I keep finding that what interests me most are these different scales we're looking at, the really local, the individual person, what they ate, what kind of pot they were buried with, what were they a, a, an older man or a younger woman or even a child, we had some child burials, and then sitting next to that there's this European story of the beginnings of metalworking and maybe new people arriving. Yeah, so that, that, that sort of different pools of experience, that the hyper-local and then the, that, yeah, the, 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 the structurally what we would call European-wide today, I, I guess. So I guess what we've almost avoided talking about so far is the people themselves and where they came from. You said that the samples that you have were, you know, they, they, they tended to live their lives in the northeast of Scotland. Did they come from here originally? Do we know if, if they, they, they migrated here? You know, were they part of a migration that went further north or inwards? Or? This has been one of the long-term questions about it. It's been, you know, say, going back to those professors of anatomy measuring skulls, there's been this idea that this was an incoming group of people who basically their heads were rounder um, than the, the Neolithic people who were earlier. Those who were buried in the you know, chambered cairns in Orkney have longer longer heads, narrower foreheads, longer heads. Um, so actually quite distinctive, and that's been commented upon all over Europe. Now, after the Second World War, talking about um, having racial groups you could identify and movements of racial groups became very, very uncomfortable. And so most explanations in the 1960s and 70s and 80s tended to focus on the beakers as a new style of material, that it was the same people but they were adopting a new style. So what's been possible more recently is to look at in a different way, looking at the genetics of them. Um, though I must say I have a big caveat over all of this because I'm really conscious that we're talking today about the importance of migration, movement of people, ethnic identity. So is it just because this is something that interests us now, we're looking for it, whereas previously we didn't want to look for it? But there's science there that we can also discuss. I mean, I, th I think your, your point of earlier on is, is very relevant here as well, is the fact that, you know, through this project, through the research and the continual research into these, this material remains, we know a lot, but there is so much more that we don't know. And it's all those subtleties and nuances of, yes, a new group might be moving in. It might be peaceful cohabitation. They might, you know, they might coexist. They might, all of this is completely lost by way of a kind of a blunt. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to describe the results of the research as blunt, but it's, yeah, yeah but they, they, they don't fit into that kind of nuanced understanding that will come when you have hundreds of written records or visual records or film or you know what have you that 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 is all not with us here and yes we are constantly looking at it through the lens of today and our own context and how we want to look at things and how we want to be seen ourselves as well that's 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 the key sort of thing there as well so what's the next stages in the research neil yes i mean i think the um, some of these issues about movement of people and genetics, I think, is the, is the next step. Um, and I'd like to look at this again in these two scales. So there's been some recent work done internationally, um, which has spotted that there, on the Y chromosome that there do certain genes that are different after about you know, 2400 BC that weren't there before. Um, and so it's the Y chromosome, so that's male. So there is a suggestion from the genetics that there are 
warrior males coming in, or if not what, I mean, we don't know why there was this change in in the Y chromosome. Was it that um, you had vicious people who came and killed all the native men? Was it disease, which is obviously, you know, we're tuned into that just now? Um, or was it just that they were really attractive to the local women? Um, we just don't know what the story is. But nonetheless, there does seem to be a new group of people um, moving across Europe. Now, at the same time, we've got these, as I said, with stabilised open analysis, we may have people whose ancestors came from elsewhere, but they spent their whole lives in the northeast, so they were local in that sense. Um, so I would like us now to start looking not just at that big sweeping story, but, for example, there's a, a group of six burials in Bor at Boriston, just in the west edge of, of Aberdeen. Not all of them are tremendously well-preserved, but I suspect that it may be three generations of one family. That's the sort of thing we could, we could look at from the genetics. Um, so some of these really local stories we could start doing, and then that data can also be used for these international narratives. Indeed. So yes, the point is the research is, is, is continual, it's ongoing, and, and who knows what techniques will come up in the next decade, really, you know, to, to help us move forward. So is there a, a place where people can get more information on this? Yes, I mean, I think there's the, the project itself has been published in, you know, monographs by the Prehistoric Society, so that's the sort of academic end of it. Um, there have been popu uh, more popular publications in current archaeology, British archaeology, um, but of course, the other thing you should do is look at the university's website and, you know, you can actually look at the records of the individual beakers. We've we've yet to put up and this maybe something else, you know, this 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 interview will stir, you know, spur me into doing is to get some of the uh, the more accessible, readable stuff and put it on the website alongside the catalogue, which is a bit dry. Yeah. OK, well, Neil, thanks very much for that sort of, you know, just dipping our toe into the water of, you know, a huge amount of research, which is going on and it's something that people will yeah but we, we know that there is you know a huge appetite to understand their own past their own identity and, and people are fascinated always by stone circles by beakers by the, you know, the the further back you go the more mysterious and remote it seems and you know but here we are teasing out the details as we can at present so thanks very much for that neil and as i say if anybody's got any questions for neil i'm happy to take them through peru at abdn.ac.uk so that's p-e-r-u at abdn.ac.uk but in the meantime thanks very much neil thank you this podcast is brought to you by the university of aberdeen